Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Jonathan Sakia. A few years ago, Bruce Jingles, a, a good friend and colleague who's been a guest on this podcast, engaged me in a discussion about the importance of health economics, a topic I was utterly clueless about, one of many, I assure you. And he told me that the York Health Economic Consortium, or YHEC, YHEC, to those in the know, was the go-to place. That led to me meeting the good people at YHEC and initiating multiple projects with their group over the years. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to have as my guest Karen Butler. She serves as project director at YHEC. She's got a bachelor's degree in neuroscience from the University of Bristol and a master's in health economics and decision modeling from the University of Sheffield. She's worked her way up as a graduate health economist, then research assistant, research analyst, and senior analyst at various consultancies, eventually culminating by joining YHEC. I've personally worked with Karen on a project, and I found her to be absolutely brilliant at her job, very responsive, and quite charming to boot. And my um, uh, my affection for her was was increased when she told me that she's absolutely obsessed with dogs, loves them all, and in her retirement dreams, heavily featured dogs. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry about this. I canine argue with that. Karen Butler, welcome to the EMJ podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. So we're on the project, uh, just for the benefit of those listening in, the project uh, uh, we were working on, we, we had a working lunch, which was supposed to be discussing the uh, the, the fineries of health economics, but instead we were talking about uh, a wonderful book that I read called Inside of a Dog and various other canine, um, uh, canine issues. Uh, so, Karen, let's start with what brought you to your current position. Tell us about your journey. I, I always like starting with that. Uh, yeah, so I think, um, like all health economists, I didn't take a particularly straightforward route there. So I did, as you said, a bachelor's degree in neuroscience, and I was a mature student officially, although not that mature. I was uh, 21, I think, when I started. I'm sorry, that constitutes being a mature student. I know, it does. It does officially. but um, <laughs> Well, well, well. Um, but as part of that, so um, Bristol University do something which I think is actually really smart. They make everybody take medical statistics. The idea, of course, being that if you have to look at studies, uh, they might declare that there is a significant result or such. But that kind of relies on them having done the correct statistical testing. And you need to be able to determine whether that is true or not uh, as the reader. So they so they asked us to do those modules um, throughout. I think it was definitely year one and two. I can't remember if year three we had to do it as well. And that kind of sparked my interest. And then when I left university, I took an entry level job as a health economist, largely because of the job description and sort of I saw being young and I, I saw all the things that I thought I understood. And I was like, I can definitely do that. And that was the beginning, really. So I worked at a consultancy and did my master's degree at the same time. And then I moved on after that to UCL and did similar kind of work, to be honest, but a little bit more research based. And then from there, I've been at other consultancies and I've gained all my experience really by working with other people who are super knowledgeable, um, very accomplished and and then finally arrived at YHEC. 
So what was it that made you think, yeah, this is the way to go rather than neuroscience? Do you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I can't remember why I decided not neuroscience. I don't know that I did decide not neuroscience. I think I just was when I was looking for graduate jobs, I just thought, actually, I I did find this really interesting. I think all the work that we did, all the lectures I went to about medical statistics, I, I, I thought they were really interesting. And I like the idea of understanding science and understanding what other people have been doing. And I think that's quite a big part of health economics is is sort of sifting through information and and really getting to grips with what's happened. Sure. So, so Karen, when I was at medical school, uh, we also had to do a course in medical statistics. And, you know, it was to teach us how important it was to have a statistical model to prove your hypothesis. And then to, you know, if you're reading papers, do, are the conclusions that they draw borne out in the numbers? And I remember that until I came across a book called uh, How to Lie with Statistics, by Daryl Huff, which I believe is now something of a classic. Um, I didn't really get it. It all seemed terribly complicated for me back then. And I have to say that health economics really didn't work for me until I met your colleague, Matt Taylor, who Mm -hmm. walked me through a model. And instead of trying to blind me with science, I always advise people, if you're trying to communicate something very complicated, make it simple. Don't focus on the big words. Make sure that the dumbest person in the room, which in this case was me, often is, uh, can understand it. First of all, then, Daryl Huff, is his book still around? And number two, do you, do you concur with that with that premise about sort of dumbing it down, if you will? Uh, so I, didn't, I haven't read that book, but I've read very similar books. Um, and I completely agree. Like, we've all heard the, the phrase about stats and lies, but... You can sort of there. Of course, if you have numbers, you can do anything you want with them. But whether or not you should be doing that is completely a different matter. And I think that's what uh, we kind of got to. And then in terms of explaining things, obviously, you can do the most magnificent things in the world. And I'm sure there are people who are capable of far more than me. But if you can't explain it to anyone else, how how useful is that? Sure, sure. So, yes, and for people who don't know the quote, it's something like there are lies, damn lies and statistics. Isn't that how it goes? That's the one I was referring to, yeah. Okay, gotta love it. So for the listeners who are not familiar with the whole field, talk to us about what it is that a consultancy like YHEC does. How was it set up? Um, How does it work? What what do you do? So... YHEC is a is a health economics consultancy um, and we're owned by the University of York. So I suppose that's the only difference between us and many other universities. And we do all of the things that kind of come under the umbrella of health economics. And that is really a really wide topic, I think. So health economics, in theory, is the is a field of economics that's focused on the analysis um, and understanding of the production and consumption of health and healthcare. So it's very broad and there are a lot of things that could potentially fall under that. But I think it's, for me, a lot of it's about making decisions or it's it's a big logic problem. And we would always, we and other consultancies aim to sort of collect evidence and make it coherent and understandable and relevant and use that to make we don't use it to make decisions but other people can then use that to make decisions so 
we're talking about things like if there are four medicines available to treat indication X and then another one comes along, should we use it or not? That kind of thing. Or we might say there is no treatment for indication Y and then a new one comes along, but it costs a million pounds per person. Is that a good use of money? So we have to collect a lot of evidence to frame those problems and for other people to be able to make decisions. So, you know, literature searching in a really structured way, um, reviewing evidence, synthesizing evidence where that's necessary. Economic modeling is obviously a big part of that. And patient outcomes. So how patients prefer things to be, what their attitude is, because, you know, my opinion about whether one treatment should displace another one or if a million pounds per person is reasonable may be very different to everybody else's. And for that reason, we need to collect quite a lot of evidence. And then we sort of combine this into a coherent or digestible package for whoever needs it. So it might be that it's a report. It might be that it's a model. Um, it might be an analysis piece. It might be just advice, um, sort of, or it could be some kind of interactive platform. We've been developing those more and more recently as well. So I'm going to come on to a little bit later, Karen, about how people perceive the work you do. But I think before that, it's it'd be good to get a wee bit more granular. So over the years, I've brought you a number of projects, um, but I'm sure that I'm no more than an accounting error, given how busy you, you, you are. How does YHEC get the gig, get the job to do a, a given analysis? How does that work? So I think um, YHEC are no different, really, from any of the other consultancies that I have worked at, in that a lot of it is about the relationships that you have with people. So like you said, you have worked with YHEC before and they've always done a good job and they've explained things really well to you. And um, they have, you, you know, so you then you then have this sort of trust in them. And I think that is more or less how we end up doing work. People need help and hopefully they've heard good things about us or they've worked with us before and, and it's gone really well. And that's usually where the work comes from. So sometimes uh, YHEC and other consultancies will bid for work. So a company may need a piece of work and they will approach a number of us and ask us to sort of pitch for it. So we do things like that as well. But yeah, very rarely, I think, do consultancies sort of solicit work or, or advertise, I don't think. It's it's more about if you need that kind of support, you'll probably know where you're looking already. Okay. So you've mentioned that you build models. Tell us tell us about that process. Walk us through. How does what what do you use to build a model? I think there's probably a lot of different ways that people might approach model building. So I can kind of I can speak to mine and I imagine it's all fairly standard. But when, when we build a model, what we are aiming to do is essentially have a tool. So it will be built in some kind of software, maybe Excel or a different programming language, or it might be a web-based platform. But it's designed so that the user can interact with it and they'll be able to change settings in there. So they might say, oh, what if there is 1,200 patients rather than 1,000? What happens to the outcomes in that situation? Or what if the incidence is 5%, not 2%, and what happens to the outcomes in that situation. So 
to do this, um, the first place I usually start, I try to understand what it is that the model needs to capture for the person who's asked me to make it. So what are they going to use it for? What do they need it to to be able to do? Does it need to have any particular functionality? And then I'll try to think about the technology. So usually we are concerned with um, a new technology or a new treatment that may be on offer or about to be on offer to other people. Um, so the developer of that treatment will have some idea about the anticipated benefit. Maybe it will, they're hoping it improves survival or it might have fewer side effects or it might be faster things like that. So I'll need to make sure that I understand what the proposed benefits of this treatment are relative to the things that are already on offer. And then I'll need to understand the indication quite well as well. So I'll need to and need to understand what the clinical events or the clinical significant points are in that indication. And then I'll need to map out the, the clinical pathway. So, you know, is it so is this new technology going to be used early on? Is it going to be used to diagnose something? Is it being used as a last resort? And I'll need to consider um, the whole pathway and which bits I need to model, because I may not need to model all of them. And then the other thing is evidence requirements. So if the if a client may is using it internally to make decisions, they might not need quite the same evidence requirements as if they were going to submit it to a formal regulatory body, for example. Um, so I'll need to think about that and the kind of evidence that already exists. The other thing is the sort of inputs and outputs. So generally speaking with models, whatever goes in can be reported at the end. So if, if, imp if we input information about, I don't know, the cost of something, then usually I can pull out the cost the total cost at the end, that kind of makes sense. I, I was just going to say, it, it's not just the, you know, it, it's an important point. It's not just the cost of the drug or the piece of kit. It's the implications for the entire treatment journeys. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So if we, so for example, say it cost um, quite a lot to provide a medication, but it reduced a number of side effects that required many inpatient stays. It's that kind of information. So if we provide information about cost at all, we then combine that with other information, maybe about the resources that are used by the person and the experience they have along the way as well. And then it may be that even though the treatment is more expensive up front, there is a saving like further down the road and that's the kind of thing that we're modeling that we're looking for so, and that's why I need to consider the entire treatment pathway and the entire experience over the time and all of the sort of important clinical endpoints. Okay so the quality adjusted life year or quali q-a-l-y quality adjusted life year I have to admit that when I first came up and visited with you guys, I had no idea what that was. And I, I'd like to think that I'm not the only ignorant one out there. Can you please explain where it came from? What, it, what is a quali? How's it valued? And how's it used within a healthcare system like the National Health Service, the NHS here in Britain? So I don't think you're alone. I don't think anybody knows what a quali is unless they have to, because it, as you say, it's a, it is a strange concept. 
So um, a quali is a quality adjusted life year, and it's a measure that considers both the quality and length of life. So the length is the length it's in years. Um, and quality is measured um, as your health related quality of life. So it's like a preference, essentially. If you imagine that the the quality or the utility can take a value of zero to one. So zero is, is death and one is absolute perfection. You have never felt better. So in reality, not many people will have a utility of one, but so we'll leave it there. Um, and there it can take values less than zero, but I would say that's quite extreme. That's considered to be worse than death. And, and there are situations where that's appropriate, but it's not often. So the quality kind of combines the preference or how good a time you're having with the length of time that you spend in that situation so if you imagine that your utility was 0.7 and and you existed like that for two years then during that time you would accrue 1.4 qualies 0.7 times two so the reason we need that is because when we're looking at an entire healthcare system and comparing many different things to each other. So we could be comparing blood pressure medication with a toenail clipping service. And we're also trying to compare that to medicines for ovarian cancer, things like that. They would all have different definitions of, of success or effectiveness. But if we use the quality, which takes into consideration people's preference for different things, then we end up with a common measure um, and we can use this as the outcome as an outcome and nice specifically use this to create what's called a willingness to pay threshold. Can you, I, I'm sorry to interrupt your flow. Nice. You've mentioned nice. Um, yeah. The real alphabet soup. Tell people about nice. So nice are essentially the the decision making body in the UK for reimbursement. They do do other things as well. The National Institute of Health and Care Excellence. Um, but if you have a treatment, if you're trying to market a treatment and you would like it to go into the treatment pathway for the NHS or you would like it to be reimbursed and available in the NHS, then you will need to approach NICE um, and have them evaluate your evidence. So that would be the clinical evidence, safety, economic evidence, the whole thing. OK, so so go back to um, presenting something to NICE. Yeah, so NICE... Um, they use the quality because it's this common measure and it, and it allows them to make sort of consistent decisions. And they they have a threshold, a willingness to pay threshold, which is 20 to 30,000 pounds per one quality. So if I go back to my example, if you have a utility of 0 0.7 for two years, that's 1.4 qualities. So you can work out using the threshold how much they would be willing to pay for that if that makes sense. Does it mean that they will pay that or? It depends. So to be honest, it depends on the quality of the evidence. If I turn up with terrible evidence and it's been managed really badly and there's and, and therefore there's very high uncertainty as to whether I've come up with the correct value, then even if I present them with a sort of £20,000 per quality result, they may not say yes because they don't have any confidence in what I've done. Um, so it's important to have that scientific rigour, I guess. Okay. Okay. So, well, we're going to come back to that whole thing, but uh, digging in a bit deeper, I know that you're experienced in methods to justify economic validation using various tools that 
um, I found a bit interesting as I was trying to understand all this, indirect treatment comparison, survival and utility analysis. Explain these for our audience and just also me, of course, just in case I got hold of the wrong end of the stick. So I think these are probably my favorite parts of uh, my job is the technical work, but they're all essentially methods that we use to make data manageable. So um, an indirect treatment comparison is like a statistical framework that allows you to compare two, two things that were never in the same trial. So if you imagine you had one trial that did A versus B and another one that did B versus C, but you need to know A versus C, then you can use these kind of methods to, to come up with that value. And similarly, survival analysis, um, it sounds it sounds almost trivial and unnecessary, but if you need to know the sort of average time to an event within a within a group, then that's the kind of thing that you would use. And we need that because evidence isn't collected for sort of long en- a long enough time often. We're often concerned with a lifetime um, time horizon. So we want to know if I introduce this treatment now um, over people's lifetime, what will happen. But often the evidence that we have has only been collected for a couple of years. So we need these sort of statistical frameworks to be able to reliably extrapolate what we do have um, to know what may happen in the future. And similarly, utility analysis, you know, there are many things that can impact a person's utility or how they report their quality of life to be. We may have, you know, thousands of rows of data from all sorts of different things. And we need to say, you know, is this different when people are on treatment or off treatment or is it different before their clinical event or after their clinical event? Or does it change over time? Is there something that impacts that? And and that's all the kind of technical work that goes behind, not all models, some models. Okay. So a little earlier, I asked you to define what the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence or NICE, it always struck me they should have called it care and health, in which case it would have been niche. Um, uh, can you please dig in a little bit deeper and educate folks about how this works, how NICE actually works, how they use the information, and based on their decision, how that impacts the deployment of a treatment? If my understanding is correct, if they say, yes, all looks fantastic, it doesn't mean that doctors are going to prescribe it, and the converse may be true we do research and we sort of collate evidence and then somebody may need to make a decision. And in the UK, that's usually nice. Um, and they, they may say, you know, yes to reimbursement or no to reimbursement, or they may say yes, but in certain circumstances. So they may say only for this subpopulation or only for a couple of years while you collect a bit more evidence and then we'll have another look at it, things like that. Um, but NICE do a lot of other things as well. So they'll they'll provide advice on treatment pathways or they'll provide guidance and, and they also provide technical guidance. So I spoke about having, having that standard so that they can reliably um, evaluate the evidence that they receive. So they'll provide technical guidance and sort of best practice as well um, for the techniques that I spoke about, say survival, utility, ITC, that kind of thing. Okay. So what about other countries, other health systems? You know, I know you've experienced presenting data for the consumption and decision-making by, by other groups. In fact, 
we were just part of a group that was presenting in in Vienna um, at, uh, at at a congress, which I'll come on to in a minute. So, what about other countries? Is the work you do relevant to other countries? And give us some examples. Yeah, so this is something when I first um, started working in this industry, I had absolutely no idea. But I was under the impression when I was very young that the NHS was something that the UK had and no one else had. But actually, that's not the case at all. Most countries have some kind of national health service. Um, And it may look a little bit different than ours does, and it may cover more or less than ours does. But yeah, most of them do. And in that respect, most countries require economic evaluation at some at some point and most countries will have a version of nice obviously they'll be called something slightly different but they broadly do all the same things i think the difference between countries is um what they care about the most so some countries will not want to see results where the outcome is the quality that we spoke about but some will some will want they'll be more interested in the total budget so how much the national budget will be impacted if this new technology is introduced but yeah most countries have similar health systems and similar decision making bodies that that we do so continuing the discussion about the international uh, impact of this and you know you're absolutely right again referring back to my time in the united states always seemed like I was educating my British colleagues about the American way of doing things and my American colleagues about the British way of doing things. So the vast majority of Americans do not actually access pure private health care. They are either um, older, in which case they're covered by CMS, which is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So that's for the elderly, the chronically uh, injured and people who are, uh, you know, poor. Um, or they are covered by their employer, or they are covered by the Veterans Administration for people who've seen military service, or by the civil service coverage. So there are many, many similarities. And the work that you do, uh, Karen, has academic credibility. It's presented uh, and published in peer-reviewed journals, and we've actually collaborated on projects that have been peer-reviewed and presented at ISPOR, for instance, Talk to us about this conference and other outlets for this kind of work. Where would people go to see this kind of work, to read about it? So I think um, we publish or we want to publish our work just like any other scientists do for the same reasons, I suppose. We want to share methods. We want to share our approaches to problems. Um, Results are obviously important if I do a study in some indication that you're also interested in, it would be helpful if you could see that. Um, and then the conference that you spoke about is is a really big one for us in, in the health economics calendar, but everyone sort of gathers around to look at each other's work and we will have posters and um, we'll talk about the big issues in our industry and how we might navigate them. But I think it, I think it's really important to, um, to publish work and have it sort of peer reviewed because it uh, sort of access acts to sort of further the industry. I think all technical people are quite curious creatures, and we all we all want things to be done well, and we all want to come up with new methods and and, and make sure they're applied appropriately. Yeah, it, it the very first one I went to a number of years ago, there were just a few hundred people. 
there were thousands at this place. It was absolutely heaving with people. It's so busy, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And just a, a point that I found quite amusing was in the, there's always like a cocktail hour at the end of the day in the exhibit hall, but I guess because it was run by economists, they were they were budgeting what people ate and drank. It just <laughs> amused me. It's quite ironic, really. Um, so I've mentioned the United States, Karen, and currently American healthcare consumes nearly one in five dollars of gross domestic product. The cost of care is rapidly galloping away from what what's what's achievable. How does the work you do help? How, how does it play into the, the bigger picture? I think the US is kind of an unusual case in, in this industry or in, in healthcare because, as you said, there's not one payer or, and there's not even two. There are a lot um, and they're often privatised or privatised to an extent. I think the other thing with the US is that it's it's absolutely enormous and so it's a very culturally diverse place. And one of the problems there is that you, to kind of make decisions consistently, you ideally want to have a consistent attitude to what constitutes value. So a lot of what we do is trying to quantify value. So maybe value for money or value to the patient. And I think, so, and in that respect, I think what we do is useful um, in the US, but the perspective might be a bit different. So I, I have to say, if I... Um, ever want to do any research for a US setting, I always um, defer to international colleagues with more expertise than mine, because it is very complex. But I think um, the idea is still we're trying to make a decision and we're trying to determine if if you're getting health value for money. In the US, I guess that's a more a less simple um, decision to make than in, in other places. Karen, as we as we come to the end, I love to ask all my guests some version of this question um, because I guess people see the world through a different optic. If you had three three wishes to improve global health, what would they be? That's such a tricky question. So, if I am aiming to improve global health, I think better education or just a lot of education availability of education is everything so everyone knows that prevention is better than cure and if you know how to avoid things um then i think that's always going to be helpful i think the other thing is accessible healthcare so that looks really different i think in a lot of places so obviously if I can get to a doctor, that's fantastic, but also making technology accessible. So a lot of tests require people to have a certain um, anatomy or physiology or capability. Um, and then the, the ones that end up displacing that, the new technologies tend to be more accessible, more people can use them. If we can diagnose people, more people, more quickly, then that's fantastic. So I think accessible healthcare, however that looks for as many people as possible would really improve global health. And I think the other one is improved standards of living. So it kind of goes with the um, prevention and education. But, you know, if we educate people and they know that clean drinking water or not hanging out in moldy rooms is good for them, that's only helpful if they can if they can reasonably improve their living standards if they have the ability to 
get clean drinking water or not have a moldy room, things like that. So I think those would probably be my three things. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us because I know how busy you are for the work you do and the elegant and clear ways that you present it. So even a dullard like me can understand it. So Karen Butler, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And folks, um, we'll put some information about the York Health Economic Consortium, YHEC, and the work that Karen does uh, in the show notes so that you can learn more. I encourage anyone listening who has any technology or idea that they're looking to bring to market, especially in these days and as we face um, an ever more complex economic future, this, th this approach is going to become more and more important. So that's all we've got time for today. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating episode and will consider subscribing for our weekly shows. Tell your friends and like us on social media. And until our next EMJ podcast, which every Friday, remember, this is your host, Jonathan Sackier, asking for you to please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. <laughs>